Hey, it's Stu with Bitcoin and Financial Independence, and today I have a special guest on the show, Greg Foss. I was able to meet him through a series of fortunate circumstances in Miami. I was largely utilizing the principles taught in the book, The Wealth of Connection by Vincent Puglisi, one of my favorite books. Long story short is I put myself in some good situations, made some great connections with people, some genuine conversation and connection, and found myself meeting some great thinkers in Bitcoin. You don't want to miss this interview. Lots of really interesting, somewhat controversial takes probably, but lots of good stuff. Really excited about this episode. I've never been more excited for a podcast episode before, so I don't want to delay any further and we'll jump right into the interview. Welcome to the show, Foss. Glad to have you on. Well, what a pleasure. Nice to meet you, Stu. <laughs> yeah, nice to meet you too. Well, and we actually met at the Swan House and yeah, it was just awesome. Like a I was surprised immediately one of our friends, uh, I guess a mutual friend now, oh, yeah. introduced us and he just, you, you immediately said, oh, I'll come on your podcast. So I was pretty surprised by that. That was very generous of you. So oh, I'm trying to spread the good word, but uh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, your background, I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, you're up in Canada and... 32 years or 35 years, depending on where I look, uh, in the risk chair. Does that mean, I mean, I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but I'm guessing you were a bond trader of some sort. Yeah. Or... Yeah. You know, so the term risk chair is a Wall Street ism that uh, basically means you manage risk uh, from a trading perspective. It's a chair that could be designated as a bond chair. You can be a hedge fund guy, you can be an equity trader. Anybody who manages a profit and loss statement based on their ability to position securities that change in value as a function of market. So I started uh, my career in 1988. I had gone to uh, school in Canada for an undergrad, and then I went to the USA. And then I came back uh, to Canada. And I started a trading career then. Uh, so that's the 30 years right there, 35 years from 1988 until present, um, where I say I've sat at a risk chair, which basically means I've managed other people's money. I started managing money for what's called the sell side of the street. Those are banks and brokerage houses using the principal, the capital of the partners or equity capital of the bank to trade, uh, securities. And then I moved to the buy side. Uh, I was a partner in two separate hedge funds. So the chair is a bit, call it ubiquitous. It's a term that's, uh, not designate any specific type of chair. It just means you're managing money. You're managing flow, uh, to try and profit off of, uh, market dynamics. So. Yeah, it's uh, been a heck of a career. Uh, it's not always fun, but uh, I, I, I term it to be a very honest profession because at the end of each trading day, you actually know how you've done. You're presented with a profit and loss on a mark-to-market -market basis of what your portfolio of positions has, how it's performed over the day. And uh, you go home and you basically are able to say, well, I had a good day or I had a bad day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people used to say to me, why do you like that? 
and it's nerve wracking, but the truth is it's like playing a sporting event each day. You know how you've done, you know, you get nervous going to work. You have butterflies in your stomach because you know, you're going to a game. And then at the end of the day, you know, you've completed the game and you get to see how you've done. Have you made money or lost money? It's that simple. So that's my life. 35 years of, uh, answering the bell to mark to market a portfolio of investment positions. And a lot of people, they, they aspire to do that, Stu. They're like, oh, it must be so much fun. No, it can be fun. It's always fun when you're making money, but the reality is when you're losing money, it's really not fun at all. And if you have any sort of conscience and you're losing money on behalf of your clients, uh, that's the worst feeling there is. So it's easiest to lose your own money. It's next easiest to lose a bank's money. Let's say you're right. You know, when you say next easiest, it's, you know, it's not as hard as losing client money. When you, when your family and friends have entrusted you to be a, uh, fiduciary for their uh, retirement funds or whatnot, and you have not succeeded in growing the value of those retirement funds, you can feel pretty bad. And so that's the pressure that you live with. And a lot of people say, oh, it must be so exciting. Well, there's times when it's not exciting at all. And you, there's a lot of other things that you'd rather be doing. Yeah. It sounds, uh, sounds intense for sure. It, it wears on you at, uh, not sure if you've, you know, I, I'm pretty open with the fact that it actually drove me to, uh, I very close to uh, suicide. I was uh, struck with anxiety and depression, and that's not surprising. After doing it for so long, your body just breaks down, uh, your mind and your body, and you just a uh, uh, frayed nerve end. So yeah, I struggled with some of that stuff, and it's very obvious, you know, the the pressures eventually got to you. But that's that's life too. Yeah, it's kind of scary, you know, that you got to that point. Yeah, so. yeah. Um. So, so tell me then, you know, at what point did you learn about Bitcoin and how does that fit into, you know, cause it's all about managing risk and, and I see you do this hashtag all the time, do the math or just, you know, yeah, math. Yeah. Simple. Math. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's start with the math side. I was an engineer, grew up in a, in, in Canada, in Montreal actually, which was the hometown of a university in Canada, that's pretty famous. It's called McGill University, and it definitely ranks up there with the top uh, engineering schools in the in the world. I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, I, would, I never would have gotten into engineering school in this day and age, but 30 years ago or 40 years ago, I was, uh, I had good enough marks to get into engineering. And uh, it's funny because I like math, but I didn't like engineering per se. And after about two weeks of engineering, I'm like, man, I just don't want to become an engineer, but I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I was actually at McGill to play sports. And I said to myself, well, I might as well stick with the engineering side. And wouldn't you know that after four years, I actually graduated with an engineering degree. And uh, that led me to try, and I was successful in applying to a master's of business administration. Uh, and I applied to one school in the United States and it was Cornell University and Ivy League school in upstate New York, which is only about a five hour drive from my hometown of Montreal. And I got in 
And I got in because I was Canadian. Again, my marks were good enough to get in, but I was lucky because they were building an international business school. And the fact that I was Canadian gave me a leg up on competing Americans that were trying to get into the same school. Uh, I didn't have the work experience that the Americans had. And I would not have been, you know, I can't say this categorically, but I don't think I would have been accepted if I had been an American applicant. But because I was Canadian, I got in and uh, I uh, benefited from being one of the youngest kids in the class, living with, uh, you know, Americans, understanding the cultural differences between our uh, countries. And wow, it was just the greatest experience of my life. But I did come back to Canada to work. I had the opportunity to work on Wall Street, but I decided I want to come back to Canada and work, uh, you know, try and, and work in Canada. So that's where it all started. And, um, you know, math is the base layer of language, right? I mean, it's pretty simple. If your mother tongue is Chinese or French, English, Spanish, you might not understand the second layer dialects between each but what you do understand is mathematics mathematics is the base layer of language it's universal and uh if you're good at math you can break down a lot of things in my opinion logically when i mentioned that i was i had to retire from managing other people's money i didn't retire from managing risk i retired from managing other people's money that was after that was in 2016 and that was close to you know, from 1998, excuse me, 1988, when I graduated from Cornell through to 2016, that's 28 years I had been managing other people's money. I retired because of the pressures of the profession. And I thought I was just going to retire. Like it was going to be fine, but a brain that's inquisitive, like uh, an, an engineer's brain. You're always looking for different things. And I, I actually found Bitcoin in 2016 and man, what a journey it's been. It's, uh, it's, it's really exciting. I believe it to be the solution to all the world's problems that are based on fiat money, money that is basically got no intrinsic value. Money that can be printed out of thin air, that's fiat money. Money that's based on trust, but nothing else. And uh, it, it leads to a lot of problems in the world that I had seen a lot of them. I'd lived through five different financial crises. Well, I guess, to be honest, four until COVID. But those financial crises were Latin American debt in 1988, long-term capital management in 1998, the internet bubble in early 2000s, then the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, and then just recently the COVID crisis. And each successive time, the problems are always the same. It's built on leverage. It's the leverage in the financial system that has accumulated to a point where the system is close to collapse and the government has to step in with a rescue package that ends up transferring risk from the financial system up to the sovereign debt level. And so in 2016, I found Bitcoin and I thought it was like everybody else probably does when they first are introduced to Bitcoin, 
oh, it's got to be a Ponzi because mainstream media tells me it's a Ponzi. But luckily I did a bit more work and peeled a layer or two of the onion. And I said, oh my God, this thing is beautiful. As an engineer, I'm visual, uh, mechanical engineer. The thing that really convinced me was watching the Bitcoin blockchain in action. You can go to a website like tradeblock.com and you can watch the transactions, the mempool, the transactions that are taking place across the globe. And it's a living, breathing, beautiful, decentralized transfer mechanism for store of value that solved the Fiat Ponzi. I was blown away. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is, there's only 21 million Bitcoin. I watch it in action. It's no one controls it. It's a trustless, verifiable ledger. And when the word trustless, that, that throws some people off. It means you don't have to trust a third party. It's all based on the system itself. And I just said, my God, this is the solution I've been looking for. And, uh, luckily I did a bit, a bit, the bit of work cause I was prepared to believe mainstream media that, you know, Bitcoin was the Ponzi when in fact Fiat now I've known Fiat's been the Ponzi, but I didn't realize Bitcoin was the solution until I went deeper into the rabbit hole. That's what I want everybody to do. They yeah. got to understand the problem with the fiat system to begin with. And then they need to understand why Bitcoin is such a beautiful solution to the fiat Ponzi. Yeah. It's definitely hard to see a solution if, if you don't see a problem. Um, People are, are paid uh, not to see the problem as well. And I worked on Wall Street and Bay Street in Canada, but even though I was physically in Canada, most of my trading counterparties were at the big Wall Street banks. You're not paid to be a detective to understand why the Fiat Ponzi is what it is. You accept it and you participate within it. And the last thing you want to do is blow up your own position within the Fiat Ponzi because that position can enrich you, right? I mean, that's, that's what happens when you work on wall street. That makes sense to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so cool. That's, that's a, that's a good background. Um, you were definitely kind of prepared to, to see the value. It took me from 2017 till 2021 before okay. it clicked. So, um, I'm relatively new, even though I got in, in 2017, I, I came for the the money and I, I stayed for the freedom, I guess you could say, but I love it, but yeah. Um, you know, and so this is another thing. I don't know if you've ever heard of the fire movement. Um, it stands no. for financial independence, retire early. No, it's uh, the first time I've heard of this. Yeah. And really the focus is on the financial independence part for me. I don't really care about retiring early. You know, I okay. want to stay busy all the time, but, but the whole idea is that. You, you've probably heard of the 4% rule, uh, maybe being in, in stocks. It's where I mean, you can, okay, you can so safely, safe withdrawal rate of 4%. So if you can reverse engineer that and say, well, I can live off of $40,000 a year. Okay. I just need to save a million dollars, and that, that will basically be my safe withdrawal rate of 4% a year adjusted okay. for inflation, and I can just live. 
But that's all based on a fiat Ponzi and kicking the can down the road of these debt crises that, that you're talking about. Yes. And and just how far can that go? I mean, I know Ray Dalio is probably the guy that I've read the most that talks about deleveragings. Okay. Um, and to happen every... What, Isn't it funny, eh? And, and, and let's just talk about that quickly. So I, I have a lot of respect for the man. I mean, uh, Bridgewater Associates was a very, very successful and large hedge fund, the largest. Um, he did benefit from, uh, uh, 30 plus years of declining interest rates to run a strategy that's called risk parity, which basically balances the, uh, the volatility of bonds against the volatility of equities. And given that, uh, bonds were negatively correlated with equities over time, uh, when equities fell people would run to bonds and bid up the prices of bonds, which meant yields would continue to go lower. And that only works when uh, yields can start at a level of close to 20% and go all the way down to close to zero over a period of 30 plus years. But that's what he participated in. So I'm a fan of his uh, risk uh adapt adaption i'm going to call it wasn't really risk management although he took advantage of a system that uh you know was biased in his favor but it doesn't work anymore like that risk parity model doesn't work anymore because interest rates eventually don't go through zero in any rational economy in europe they did but the europeans lost the plot a long time ago negative yielding bonds were you know such a silly in hindsight, but you should have been able to do the math, such a silly investment. But anyway, sticking with Ray Dalio, I'm a fan of his, but here's what I want to say. He understands debt cycles. He knows the solution is Bitcoin. And then he just, he says, well, I don't think that Bitcoin is the solution. And I, I don't know if you saw this thing on TV. And then he describes what he think is the solution. And he basically describes Bitcoin. Like, what a knucklehead overthinking, right? Like anyway, so I'm just have to call out again, too smart by a half, Mr. Ray Dalio. You're trying to wait for a solution that's staring you right in the face. It's called Bitcoin. Uh, I just don't get it, but. Huh. I'll have to check that out. I, I haven't seen that clip. So Yeah, well, he, he was on CNBC and he was describing what he thought the, the perfect instrument was to solve the Fiat Ponzi. And he basically described Bitcoin. It was, it was quite hilarious. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I can't believe, but that being said, let's focus on the positive. Yeah. He's a, he's a smart cookie. Well, and he has an allocation to it. I believe a small, only allocation. personally, only personally, I don't oh. think Bridgewater does. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't believe in it. That's the difference. Like, yeah, he might have a small allocation to it because he think it's maybe non-correlated or it's a, uh, like it's a moonshot or whatever. But at the end of the day, uh, if he hasn't gone deep enough in the rabbit hole to see its beauty yeah that makes sense and and that's funny um i actually used to listen to a podcast i didn't listen a lot but it was called risk parity radio oh um so just kind of funny i mean i've i've heard that term but the way you describe it like you have the background i didn't really understand that was his strategy or yeah. that whole concept but now that you tie those points together it makes a lot more sense to me what this podcast was about so yeah, he did it well and he did it with leverage. Basically, he was able to lever the bond uh, portion of the portfolio 
so that when equity sold off, if he had a leverage position, long bonds, uh, and the prices went up, well, if you're levered two to one and the prices go up, uh, only half as much as the, uh, equity market falls, well, that's fine. You're still neutral, right? Because you're leveraged two to one on the, excuse me, on the bond side. So that was the risk parity, the flattening of the volatility overall of the, uh, of the overall portfolio. But again, it only works in bond math, provided it starts at a yield of close to over 15%, which it was in 1990 or 1985 right. and goes all the way down to under half a percent in 2019, right? That's the US 10-year yield. That's what it did over that period of time. Once that math is over, bonds are only math. That's why I love bond trading because they are predominantly math. Yeah, I wish I understood that better. You know, I've never taken an interest in bonds. Um, what what I have always done, you know, part of this FIRE movement, their whole thing is to buy passive index funds like yeah. VTI or VTSAX um, or VOO, basically the S&P 500 from Vanguard. Um, and, you know, I saw you post about that too. That was another topic I thought maybe you could shed some light on because passive index fund investing is is become so dominant that at some point it can't really work because it's not going to be as efficient as it was like that that's probably why apple google microsoft like everyone in their 401k is putting their money into those stocks that's, right. that's why there's seven percent of the fund you that's know right. you got 500 companies and 20 percent is five companies so i don't know how long that can carry uh, it actually scares me. Well, so that itself is only math because it's an index. It's a it's a uh, market cap weighted index, right? But right. but listen here, what it does is it allows for companies that uh, should otherwise not be included in an investment basket to get carried along, because when you invest a one dollar in the SPX, uh, you are buying four hundred and well. Let's call it the five companies that are dominating, you know, Facebook, Apple, uh, you know, Google, the Microsoft. Yeah. So you, you, you have those big ones, but you still have 490 other companies, some of which should not be actually a buy. They are actually a sell. And I'm just going to throw out one for you guys, Western Union. All right. That's in the S SPX. That thing is still, last time I looked around us, you know, a $5 billion market cap or something like that. Come on, it's over for Western Union, okay? The reality is if it wasn't being held up by index buying, that stock should be half of its current value, if not lower. But that's what happens when you buy uh, a passive index. You are a portion of your purchase goes to supporting companies that otherwise should be sell candidates, not buy candidates, in my opinion. Yeah. So that's uh, another question I have for you. Like if you had to choose between a market cap weight and an equal weight S&P 500, is, yeah. is one better than the other? I mean, the thing there's, is there's that a guy that's, caps, yeah, there's a guy that's made a, uh, a, an entire career out of doing that. Uh, his name's escaping right, me right now. It starts with it. His last name starts with an A, but 
he calls it um, something indexing, where in Canada, for example, there was a time when a famous company called Nortel, Nortel Networks, which ended up going bankrupt, but it was the largest company in Canada uh, for a time because it was manufacturing all these um, components of the uh, the Celex and the the internet, but the backbone of the internet. So Nortel Networks, uh, everybody was buying it, and and it made up such a large component of the Toronto Stock Exchange index that when you passively bought the index, you were buying twenty percent of your dollar went to buying Nortel Networks. And in fact, that company eventually went bankrupt because if you looked through the enterprise value of the company, you could see that it was actually a free cash flow negative. Point is, uh, his name is John. Oh, I'm so sorry that I don't have this at the tip of my tongue, but the point is he calls it uh, active indexing. Okay, so he takes an index and the components of the index and of the 500 companies in the SPX, uh, he'll say 400 of them are a buy and 100 of them are a sell. So I'm only going to buy the 400. And then he has outperformance based on his ability to identify the 400 of the 500 that are the are the buys and the other ones he leaves as a um you know, doesn't purchase them. He doesn't short sell them. He just doesn't purchase them. Anyway, his his track record's been really pretty good. And that form of active indexing is uh, is active portfolio management. And that I can I can get my head around. I'm actually a big believer that professional portfolio managers do bring alpha to the table. Uh, however, what's his name? Vogel, the founder of Vanguard that you were mentioning. He got his whole shtick was, oh, the performance of indexes or managers overall, which is true because you can't outperform a market. All of the constituents of a market make the market. That's why as a group, you can't outperform the market because you are the market. And once you net out fees, you're going to underperform the market as a group by whatever fee you charge your clients. But that's not how the world should work. There are companies you should buy and companies you should not buy. And just because they're in weighted index, if you blindly buy the weighted index, you're supporting zombie companies that should otherwise die a quicker death because their stock price goes to zero than if you're participating in this passive strategy. So it's anti-American. If you want my opinion, passive indexing is anti-American. There is no creative destruction. There's no quick burn to get the zombie companies out and, uh, you know, the deadwood out of the forest. Wow. That's, uh, that's a pretty big mindset shift for me. Um, cause that's a strategy I've employed from 2009. My dad got me into stocks in 2009, which was a good time. Yes. Uh, until now. And I really, you know, this is kind of leading into one of my, one of my other questions. We're, we're, we'll get there. But um, yeah, everything you're saying makes sense. So, I mean, you're, you're not saying an equal weight fund would not be better no. than a. It's a, a actively account. managed fund that doesn't buy. Let's say you're a long only losers. fund. Yeah. You, you, if you're going to invest, 
as an active manager, you pick of the 500 companies that you're able to invest in, you pick the number of companies that you should invest in that you believe are buys and you leave the ones that don't warrant a risk adjusted investment, uh, on the side. And that's called active portfolio management. But if you listen to Mr. Vogel and his, you know, crotchety old strategy, it's worked over time, mostly because of what? Mostly because he convinced the big asset managers, it was easier to buy an entire portfolio of stocks rather than pick a number of select managers to manage the different risks. And, uh, over time, uh, and this is key over time, it's true that the managers can't outperform the market as a whole because they are the market. That is what a market is, is a combination of investment managers over time. But in the short run, a good manager absolutely can outperform the market. And, you know, but then when you get the, the thesis, oh, well, it's just fees. You're just peeing fees away. Well, it got traction and you know, these big portfolios, uh, pension funds don't like paying fees. So that's uh, easier to buy an index than it is to employ, you know, Stu and company to, uh, to, to pick stocks or other investments. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and what's funny, so I did actually dabble in Motley Fool. Maybe you've heard of them. They're I have, yeah. I'm not sure if you have an opinion on them, but I uh, I did super good in COVID. That's when I got in, kind of. Okay. All the high-flying tech stocks, and then it just crashed. Um, that portfolio went back to where I started. So uh, I don't know. I wasn't terribly impressed, but. Well, I Motley Fool, I, you know, I, I see their research. I'm not sure what the strategy would have been, but. Uh, so I'm not familiar with the strategy per se, but don't forget, like momentum is a incredible thing. If you get enough people who are reading Motley Fool to buy the thesis of Motley Fool, it becomes self-perpetuating, right? And yeah. uh, then all of a sudden, you know, uh-oh, it starts going bad. And one one guy abandoned ship and then another and another, and eventually the price returns right back to, uh, you know, the outperformance. You give back all the alpha. Um, yeah, look, I'm not saying it's easy, by the way, I'm just saying it's the reality and it's a lot of it's mathematics. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, so let me ask you this. If you had to choose between like a Berkshire Hathaway and the S and P 500, any thoughts there? I mean, if I had to guess, you'd probably lean Berkshire, but I would, except I don't like Charlie and, uh, and, uh, Warren's view on Bitcoin. So, uh, uh, look. They actually have benefited from the fiat Ponzi more than more than most portfolio managers because they're heavily weighted into banks and banks are the w things that benefit from the fiat Ponzi <laughs> when you're too big to fail and you have a government backstop. Warren and Charlie have been uh, masters of being a distressed buyer. Uh, when the uh, opportunities presented. So, okay, I guess your question, I have to answer it. Out of logic, I would pick Berkshire Hathaway. On principle, I would take the S&P 500 because I couldn't bring myself to pay fees to those two old uh, farts 
that can't see that they are the beneficiaries of the Fiat Ponzi, right? Uh, I'm not particularly proud of pitching Coca-Cola to people in the, around the world that they should drink a uh, sugared water. Uh, but that's one of their biggest investments, you know, candies. Okay. That's fine. If you really like those candy kisses that Warren, uh, pitches, like he's a good investor and don't get me wrong. He's been very good for American capitalism, but I think he's missing the boat on Bitcoin in a big way. And well, time will take care of that. Right. I, I hate to say it, but, uh, statistically speaking, we, uh, we won't have to hear their opinions on Bitcoin that much longer. Uh, it's only math. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. The math coming back in there. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's interesting. Um, you're really making me question some of my choices over the years, just, uh, cause I, I always heard like the average person and you're right. I probably can't outpick stocks of an active fund manager, uh, because they're heads down doing research and all that stuff. So that's why passive funds made, made yep. sense to me. But I've heard this argument pop up over the years. At a certain point, passive breaks down and the active it swings back um, because too much Look at a guy like money. Stanley Druckenmiller. Like, just look at professional managers over time who have consistently outperformed the benchmark. And those are the people that you put money with. Um, you know, there was a time when Bill Miller prior to the uh the great financial crisis bill miller had outperformed the s p for some outrageous number of years running but then he was too heavily weighted in financials when he went into the great financial crisis and he hit, he hit the wall the leg mason fund that he founded and you know basically brought to fame uh hit the wall and he doubled down when he should have been selling financials. He actually bought more and bought more and bought more. And that almost, well, it actually did destroy his career. I just met him in Miami, actually. He's a Bitcoiner. And, yeah, uh, and so is his son. That being said, look, statistics are reversion to the mean over time. Um, but if you have a track record like either of those two men where you've outperformed better than average, well, you're supposed to give those people money to manage. That's the efficient thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, I saw on your LinkedIn profile. Okay. You say you're a Bitcoin enthusiast and realist and uh, embrace Bitcoin as a hedge against the debt spiral. Uh, 1% to 3% exposure to Bitcoin is prudent risk management. So... What is that? Is that advice for individuals? For everybody, everybody, everybody. Yeah. So it's, it's basically, I could summarize it the following way. If you own zero Bitcoin, you're actually taking more risk than if you own a proper portfolio allocation. It's another way of saying you've got to get off of zero and one to 3% is a little light, uh, given I guess I should update my uh, LinkedIn profile. Thank you for that. I hadn't realized, but it, it's basically trying to get the big money, the CalPERS of the world, the California CalPERS stands for California Public Employees Retirement System. Okay. The, one of the largest funds in the United States. I think it's the largest uh, pension fund in the USA. Uh, CalPERS, they need exposure to Bitcoin. They're underfunded. Their pension fund is underfunded by about 30%. Uh, 
based on la their last numbers, which means their future obligations are 30% lower based on statistical or based on uh, anticipated payout ratios and returns in the markets. Uh, they are at a deficit to their future obligations of 30%. They need assets in their portfolio mix that can produce asymmetric upside returns. And that's what I think Bitcoin is. So, uh, yeah, one to 3% is a good starting point. Zero is the wrong answer. The only wrong allocation to Bitcoin is zero. You need one to 3% to start. I would argue that 5% is a good bogey for everybody to try and get to. And my personal exposure is 40. So, and then I know certain people that have a hundred percent. Now I'm not advocating the hundred percent. I couldn't sleep at night if I did have a hundred percent. It's just not the way I manage risk, but some people are comfortable with that. And I'm not going to say that's the wrong exposure for them. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's funny. Um, when I started this podcast, it's because there were certain podcasts that we're talking about what I've been talking about, just passive index fund yep. investing and real estate and, you know, getting rentals and all this stuff. And, and they would talk about Bitcoin, but they, they would say it's all speculation. They didn't understand it. And so right. I wanted to kind of mesh that in. And the reality is, is that, you know, you can't expect everyone to go all in. So my whole thing is just stay in the old system. It's right. there, you know it, you're comfortable, but just get, you know, I say one to 10% of new money or portfolio if you're if you're feeling more risky or, or more confident i guess if you understand it uh, if you really understand it maybe one to ten percent net worth and i started with a target of uh ten percent that and then it hit all-time highs and that i was like okay we're good we're good and now it you know it fell so i was down at five percent so uh now i'm at 14 percent allocation so okay. it's growing but um let me ask you this how do you recommend people like get exposure like I did end up getting a an IRA uh, that supported Bitcoin, but it supported a bunch of altcoins as well. Okay. It also supported stocks, so it was uh, it was what I thought was a good solution. But then their fee structure changed. I wasn't happy with it. Okay. Um, I ended up taking money out of there and actually rolling into uh, Swan IRA. A lot, okay. A lot lower fees, uh, more transparency. But you know, I thought it, it's kind of tough because. You know, that's kind of where I had been putting my retirement and where I've been putting most of my investing. So I I, th I thought that might be a good way to allocate, but you can't really self-custody that. You're still, you know, kind sure. of leaving that. That's it. Well, you can, but it's a legal gray area. But okay. anyway, I'm just curious how you think people get to that point where they're allocating it. Just new money or do they? No, I, I'm, I'm a fan of dollar cost averaging. Uh, so uh, picking what you're going to be comfortable with and getting to that level using, I would say the first place you want to sell or take an allocation from is your bond allocation. I've actually written a paper that's, uh, three years old now, but basically says, uh, the title is why every fixed income portfolio manager needs to own Bitcoin as portfolio insurance. Uh, bonds are a horrible investment. Okay. They are a fiat contract that are programmed to debase because fiat is programmed to debase. So even though you're going to get your hundred dollars back that you invest in us treasury bonds for a period of 10 years, you get the hundred dollars back. But after 10 years, that, uh, investment, uh, 
purchasing power is a fraction of, let's say, 65% of what it was when you first invested. And there's no way that the annual coupon makes up for that uh, debasement. So if you're going to decide where you're going to get your allocation from, my first recommendation is if you have a standard portfolio mix of 60% equities and 40% bonds, which is, you know, your typical uh, Vanguard would tell you that's the perfect balance fund. Well, they're wrong, but anyway, well, then you take your X percent that you decide to allocate to Bitcoin, let's say 5%, and you go 60% equities, 35% bonds, and 5% Bitcoin. So that 5% came out of the bond allocation. And you make that decision, but you don't do it all at once. You do it over a period of, let's say, half a year. Every week, you take, do 126th of your allocation that you've decided. And you do it religiously and you capture, you know, downs and ups. And over time, you capture the inherent volatility of Bitcoin. And there's lots of studies that show how successful that's been. Even when Bitcoins come from its all-time high all the way back down to a level that's less than one-third of its all-time, or approximately one-third of its all-time high. But if you've done a dollar-cost averaging strategy, your average purchase price is very much in line with where Bitcoin is currently trading because it was down almost 80% off its all-time high. And now it's, you know, 50% off its all or just over 50% off its all-time high. The point is, I need you to understand this, dude. It is such a rounding error in terms of its potential price appreciation over time. You want to do it disciplined but you don't want to try and get fancy and say, oh, I'm going to buy it when it hits a price target of this because there's two things. It may never hit that price target. And the second thing is, when it, if it does hit your price target, human nature is to say, oh, I'm too scared to buy it now. I said I would, but I'm too scared to buy it now. I'm going to wait for even lower prices and you outsmart yourself. That's what human nature is. That's why computers sometimes are much better at investing than humans are because you put a computer program together that says, I'm going to buy it religiously on a dollar cost average basis every week for the next 26 weeks. That's the smart way to do it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I think that's that's great. So going back to this, uh, some other things that you've said as as far as, you know, that's allocating, but, you know, as far as it monetizing, or appreciating, like from your your view, why does it have so much upside? I mean, obviously the adoption is really small. So yeah. I think like even homes have been monetized, real estate's been monetized as a store of value. Apple, Google, Microsoft have been monetized as a store of value. Probably, you know, valuations have continued to stretch in stocks. These things are turning into store of values that probably shouldn't be, that are just, you know, outsized uh, more than what they should be. Okay. Does that well, make look, sense? Um, and is, it does. It does. So that, your or? your house. So people are naturally smart. They realize that, you know, um, they need to own hard assets to an extent. And let's start with bonds. Bonds are not a hard asset. They are a soft asset. We've described why they're a soft asset. Whereas real estate is a much harder asset. Equities are somewhere in between. Um, most equities. And the point is this: <clears throat> Why is real estate a hard asset? Well. It's not really that your house 
the value of your house has not changed materially. The uh, marginal benefit of uh, shelter has not really changed over the last 40 years for humans, except that the price of your house is measured by a depreciating fiat unit of account has gone up in price, but the value stayed the same, right? And so that's a hard asset, real estate, gold, hard asset, equities can be considered a harder asset, but bonds are a soft asset. So people are smart. They gravitate to assets that will maintain their value and actually go up in price because the value is the same, but the price has increased when using a debasing or depreciating unit of account. And Bitcoin happens to be the best card asset that's ever been created, defended by math and code. You can think of it as digital gold. I actually like to think of it even more from an engineer's perspective, digital energy. But you ask me why. It's got such an upside. And I'm just going to run through some really quick numbers with you. It comes about when you start calculating total addressable market. And the total financial assets, these are Institute of International Finance numbers. Total global financial assets today are 900 trillion US dollars. Okay. That includes 400 trillion of global debt. The largest asset, financial asset out there is global debt. There's 300 trillion of global real estate. There's a hundred trillion of global equities. There's another hundred trillion of assets like currencies, gold, commodities. So you have 400 plus 300 plus 100 plus 100. There's your 900 trillion US dollars of global financial assets. And I like to say, Let's play some sensitivity analysis. What if Bitcoin were to gain a 5% market share of all these global financial assets? What's 5% of 900 trillion in today's dollars? That's $45 trillion divided by the 21 million fixed supply of Bitcoin. That's over 2 million bucks per Bitcoin US in today's dollars. So in 10 years, measured in today's dollars, that $2 million is probably $6 million per Bitcoin in 10 years time. Okay. I've never seen a trade opportunity like that in my career. And that's what you strive to find is asymmetric upside opportunities like this. You'll only have four or five of them in your entire career. And in fact, none of them will be as good as Bitcoin, but the first two you're going to miss, do because you're not going to be smart enough to do it. You're going to question yourself and you're going to be like, oh, uh, what if, what if, what if? And so you'll miss the first two. And then the third one you'll end up buying, but you'll get too smart and you'll sell it after you've made a hundred percent return and you'll sell it and it'll go up another 50 times from the one times money you've made, uh, you know, a hundred percent return. So you sell too early. Then you have the fourth and fifth chances. And you can't miss these because you don't have that many in your entire career. So that's why I'm a pound the table. You have to get on the Bitcoin 
bandwagon and it's not a bandwagon it's pure mathematics it is the best hard asset that we have ever seen as an investing public yeah that makes sense and uh just a few points i wanted to touch on there you know bonds being a soft asset yeah it's government debt right basically well, no. Uh, so yeah, the government debt of the 400 trillion government debt is about a uh, hundred trillion of that. And then the okay. balance is private debt. Uh, right. So co companies obviously can issue bonds as well. Yeah. Municipalities, things like that. And you have a mortgage. So that would be included in there too. Okay. Yeah. And you know, I'll just say this, a uh, random thought, but you know, I've never been interested in bonds. Um, I see my mortgage, my primary home mortgage, as my bond portfolio because I get a fixed interest rate and I pay it in depreciating dollars. So I think a mortgage is better than having well, bond. Well, but that being said, it's actually a liability. It's not an asset. And you're doing it smart. You're actually being smart. But if you're a pension plan, you actually have bonds as your risk, as one of your risk baskets. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and so another thing that you're saying, like, with houses being a hard asset, your home value since 2020, you know, COVID and before 2020, is, your home value has not actually gone up materially. That's just one point I wanted to focus on. The money is just worth less. Your home is not more valuable than it was. Same thing. I, I, I You use it a couple of years. I'm using a 40-year. My parents bought a home for 17000 Canadian dollars in 1950. And they ended up selling that same home for $400,000. But the value of the home was the same. It's just the unit of account had lost so much purchasing power that it took 400000 of these same donkey dollars to buy the house that they initially paid 17000 donkey dollars for. Yeah. And, and there's a few other factors other than depreciating currency, like some uh, you know what? Here's the craziest thing. Here's the craziest thing. By and large, it's all due to the depreciating currency because houses aren't scarce. Okay. Houses in a neighborhood can be scarce, but if you have to, you just have to live in another neighborhood. So, you know, there is a utility value. There is a preference value. There's no question. But at the end of the day, it's the debasing of the currency, which is the largest component. Yeah. Okay. I can get behind that for sure. Um, so I want to talk about a couple more things. Okay. Uh, and maybe you can just explain this. The hashtag for the kids. Oh. You know, you're all about that. Um, tell me more about that hashtag. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's, a, it's an expression or a uh, moniker that can... Reduce your time preference, increase your time horizon. Uh, if you start thinking about you own Bitcoin, not to try and enrich yourself in the next two years, but you own it for your children. Uh, and it's something that you're going to pass along to your children because you believe it'll be a generational wealth creating opportunity. And I guess I also have to say, I'm just turning 60 in the next couple of months. Um, you know, I, I've worked hard in my career to the point where, you know, I'm not independently wealthy, but I, I, I have some savings that, uh, that uh, you know, I'm proud of having put those savings together. Um, 
I want Bitcoin to perform where the way I think it will, uh, but I don't need it to in terms of preserving my wealth. But there's a lot of people out there that need it to. And it's for those people that I, I'm trying to convince that they need to do it for their kids as well as my kids, but really for their kids and then their kids' kids, right? Um, if you start thinking of it that way, then you don't get too bent out of shape about annual moves in the price. You know, I like to say, hey, I'm not sure how it gets to my $2 million in today's uh, dollars price target, but let's talk in 20 years and we'll see where we're at then. Gotcha. Okay. And sorry, I feel like I'm jumping around a little bit. It's all good. But uh, a couple more thoughts here. Okay. You had, you had said, um, I, I can't remember if this is on LinkedIn, maybe in your profile uh, or somewhere else, but it was said uh, that Bitcoin is a credit default swap against wow. sovereign debt. Attaboy. Yeah. And I'm not super familiar. I mean, I know what a CDS is on a very basic level. Maybe you okay. can explain that to me. You know, like I'm five, <laughs> very simple. Uh, you know, I, I love what you're, you're trying to say. Um, it's it's hard to explain it like you're five, because honestly, a five year old uh, shouldn't be messing around with credit default swap. But what a credit default swap is, is basically an insurance policy that protects you against the default of a counterparty. So I have mentioned that I believe Bitcoin to be a equivalent of a credit default swap on a basket of fiat currencies. And in that, you can calculate the intrinsic value of Bitcoin using open market credit default swap rates on the various countries like the USA. There is an open market credit default swap rate on the United States. Now, it's not a huge probability that the USA will fail to pay their debts over the next five years, but it's not zero either. If it was truly default risk-free, there would mean no credit default swap market, but there is. And once you take that CDS spread, that's the premium you pay on an annual basis to insure the debt against default. That's like an insurance premium and you buy it from an insurance provider. And in the event of default, there's a payout. And corporate bonds where, that do default on a regular basis, there is a well-defined uh, mechanism to ensure payout on those policies. Now, some countries default all the time, like Argentina has defaulted five times in my career. Can you imagine still lending money to the country of Argentina? and expecting you're going to get your money back with a high degree of certainty. You're a fool. But people still do that. And Argentina, incidentally, is a G20 country. If I'm not mistaken, it's G19. It's in the 19 largest economies in the world. So it's not one of those piddly countries, you know, in the, in the lower 100s. Okay? So you can take this basket of fiat and you can calculate using the outstanding debt of the nations, multiply it by the insurance premium, and you can come up with an intrinsic value of Bitcoin. It is a thesis that has gained traction. And especially for someone who spent their 
entire career in credit markets like I have, it makes a ton of sense. But for someone like you that, you know, you, you're not quite as comfortable with bonds and you haven't spent your entire career in bonds, I don't expect, expect you to grok it right away, but I'm telling you it's gaining traction. Mike Novogratz, in fact, you know, had this epiphany that Bitcoin is default protection on the USA. And it's like, hey, congrats, Novo, you, you actually figured it out. I don't know if I had anything to do with that, but I will tell you that it's not just default protection on the USA, it's default protection on the USA plus all other fiat countries in the world. And that's the exciting part because the USA will be the last fiat to fail. But all fiats fail. It's just a matter of time. The USA will be the last. Canada will fail. That's my whole country will fail 10 years before the USA does. So we better get Bitcoin in Canada before I worry about all Yankee doodles getting Bitcoin. The Canadian Canucks, we need to get Bitcoin before you guys do. All of this is a thesis. It allows me a way of putting an intrinsic value on Bitcoin, a different way of valuing it, especially from a credit uh, perspective. Yeah. These are like two, almost like price models, very yeah. loosely fleshed out. Yeah, we put some soft numbers on it, but but super interesting to me. Uh, I am curious, you know, what happens once that total addressable market is met, uh, you know, and it's monetized. I mean, they say Bitcoin only monetizes once, um, and that's happening right now. But you know, I've always just wondered, like, what's 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 it look like once it's monetized? I mean, I think it goes from five percent to ten percent to twenty percent to you know much higher. So. Let's, you got to get to 5% of the total adjustable market before you get to 10%. And right now it's not even at one. The total adjustable market is 900 trillion. And Bitcoin's market cap is for a number, half a trillion. So it's one eighteen hundred of the total adjustable market right now. Let's get it to one twentieth. And then we'll see where it goes. But imagine that it's only one eighteen hundred of the market right now. Holy moly. That's why it's so darn exciting. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So so yeah, this has been really helpful for me just to understand some things. But uh, I want to be sensitive to your time. We're at the hour limit. Um, okay. Is there anything, you know, that you want to share that maybe that hasn't been shared? You know what? I, it's been a great talk. Um, I will just say, don't overthink things, right? Like the wrong allocation is zero. Get 5% of your portfolio or even 1%. But let's get say we get you to 5%. And don't worry about your 5%. Worry about the other 95% of your portfolio where the true risk is. And just let that 5% sit there. And we'll revisit it in 20 years, okay? Yeah. That's how you manage risk properly. The, the human nature thing is to get involved in Bitcoin and then focus on that 5% and lose sleep over that 5% when in fact, that's the wrong way to do it. You should be losing sleep over the other 95% of your portfolio that actually is losing value and Bitcoin will take care of itself. So that's probably my best advice is try not to overthink. Yeah, and you know, I think this is a study, I wanna say by Vanguard, maybe Fidelity, but 
you know, they found that the best investors in stocks, so I think this is kind of relatable to Bitcoin, the best investors were the people that died or forgot their password because <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't fool around. They didn't outsmart themselves. They didn't get in their own way. Uh, and also, I think, I don't know if it's Stan Held that originally said this, but, you know, he says, don't wait and buy Bitcoin. Just buy Bitcoin and wait. And, you know, yeah, no one nice. has held it. Nice. No one, no one that's held Bitcoin for, what, four or five years has lost money so far. So, yeah, I think you're right. If we if we chat in five or ten years, you know, we'll be yeah. pretty happy. Yeah. And that's even an early time frame. Uh, I have a very good friend, another Canadian. His name is Jeff Booth. I'm not sure if you or your listeners know who he is, but he wrote a great book called The Price of Tomorrow. He has a line that says, in the next 10 years, the next decade, we are going to experience a hundred years of change. So the, it's equivalent of saying how much the world changed between 1925 and 2025. We're going to see the same amount of change between the years 2025 to the years 2035 100 years worth of change in the next decade bitcoin will be a huge part of that but don't overthink things don't try and manage things with it through a rear view mirror things are going to be changing very very quickly yeah great i i love that so i i haven't read the book it's on my list uh Price of Tomorrow. That's, that's great guy. Uh, yeah, great yeah. guy. And he he also, you know, I've listened to a few of his interviews. He he is um he's a little more gentle. And you you're pretty tame in this interview. I know sometimes you get pretty fired up. So anyway, yeah, you know what I mean. It's late at night. Plus, uh, you know, I try. And a lot of people have said I've been on Kitco News and I didn't drop any f bombs, and they're very appreciative of that. And you know, I guess I get I swear because I care, and I'm an old trader and. Every second word on a trading floor is a swear word, unfortunately, but true. Uh, but sometimes you just, uh, you know, you're a calm guy too. You brought out, uh, you brought out my calm side. So I hope I got the message across. Um, I, I'm passionate about this. I'm disgusted with the Fiat Ponzi. And I think that more people need to understand the exact situation that we're in. Uh, and Thanks for having me, you know? I mean, yeah. we can spread we can spread the word uh together. Yeah. That sounds good. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Stu. All right, that's a wrap on this episode. Hope you enjoyed that and learned something new from Foss. Uh give him a follow if you haven't already. I found how to think about adoption and different ways of pricing Bitcoin extremely insightful along with his input on active indexing versus passive index funds, which is the most popular way to invest these days, considering most retirement plans in North America and, and the developed nations now follow this strategy. It's very eye-opening, interesting stuff, showing you how you can go against the grain and zig when others zag. Uh, hope to have him on again sometime in the future and looking forward to some other good guests coming up soon. Remember that financial independence is doable and I'll be back with you soon.